When his letter to Mrs. Weston arrived, Emma had the perusal of it, and she read it with a degree of pleasure and admiration which made her at first shake her head over her own sensations and think she had undervalued their strength. It was a long, well-written letter, giving the particulars of his journey and of his feelings, and the transition from Highbury to Inscombe, the contrast between the places in some of the first blessings of social life, was just enough touched on to show how keenly it was felt, and how much more might have been said, but for the restraints of propriety. And we're back, another week, another two chapters of Emma. Hope you guys are enjoying this. This is a bit of a long book. Uh, we're almost done here with Volume 2, and then we'll be jumping into Volume 3. Uh, getting two chapters in here today, so we're uh, moving right along. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to the, the patrons who make this podcast possible. If you want to become a patron, uh, that would be amazing. Uh, you can get all kinds of awesome perks, like free audiobooks, free merchandise, all kinds of cool stuff. So go check that out at anotherworldaudiobooks.com, where you can also get just straight-up free audiobooks uh, without becoming a patron, too. So I like giving stuff away in case you hadn't noticed hope you guys are enjoying this and uh let's get to it without further ado i give you the next two chapters of emma chapter 12 one thing only was wanting to make the prospect of the ball completely satisfactory to emma it's being fixed for a day within the granted term of frank churchill's stay in surrey for, in spite of mr weston's confidence she could not think it so very impossible that the Churchills might not allow their nephew to remain a day beyond his fortnight. But this was not judged feasible. The preparations must take their time. Nothing could be properly ready till the third week were entered on, and for a few days they must be planning, proceeding, and hoping in uncertainty, at the risk, in her opinion, the great risk, of its being all in vain. Enscombe, however, was gracious, gracious in fact, if not in word, his wish of staying longer evidently did not please, but it was not opposed. All was safe and prosperous, and as the removal of one solicitude generally makes way for another, Emma, being now certain of her ball, began to adopt as the next vexation Mr. Knightley's provoking indifference about it, either because he did not dance himself, or because the plan had been formed without his being consulted. He seemed resolved that it should not interest him— determined against its exciting any present curiosity or affording him any future amusement. To her voluntary communications, Emma could get no more approving reply than, "'Very well. If the Westons think it worth while to be at all this trouble for a few hours of noisy entertainment, I have nothing to say against it, but that they shall not choose pleasures for me. Oh, yes, I must be there. I could not refuse.' and I will keep as much awake as I can, but I would rather be at home, looking over William Larkin's week's account. Much rather, I confess. Pleasure in seeing dancing. Not I, indeed. I never look at it. I do not know who does. Fine dancing, I believe, like virtue, must be its own reward. Those who are standing by are usually thinking of something very different. This, Emma felt, was aimed at her, and it made her quite angry. It was not in compliment to Jane Fairfax, however, that he was so indifferent, or so indignant. He was not guided by her feelings in reprobating the ball, for she enjoyed the thought of it to an extraordinary degree. It made her animated, open-hearted. She voluntarily said, "'Oh, Miss Woodhouse, I hope nothing may happen to prevent the ball. What a disappointment it would be!' 
I do look forward to it, I own, with very great pleasure. It was not to oblige Jane Fairfax, therefore, that he would have preferred the society of William Larkins. No, she was more and more convinced that Mrs. Weston was quite mistaken in that surmise. There was a great deal of friendly and of compassionate attachment on his side, but no love. Alas, there was soon no leisure for quarrelling with Mr. Knightley. Two days of joyful security were immediately followed by the overthrow of everything. A letter arrived from Mr. Churchill to urge his nephew's instant return. Mrs. Churchill was unwell, far too unwell to do without him. She had been in a very suffering state, so said her husband, when writing to a nephew two days before, though from her usual unwillingness to give pain, the constant habit of never thinking of herself, she had not mentioned it, but now she was too ill to trifle, and must entreat him to set off for Enscombe without delay. The substance of this letter was forwarded to Emma in a note from Mrs. Weston instantly. As to his going, it was inevitable. He must be gone within a few hours, though without feeling any real alarm for his aunt, to lessen his repugnance. He knew her illnesses, they never occurred but for her own convenience. Mrs. Weston added that he could only allow himself time to hurry to Highbury after breakfast, and take leave of the few friends there whom he could suppose to feel any interest in him, and that he might be expected at Hartfield very soon. This wretched note was the finale of Emma's breakfast. When once it had been read, there was no doing anything but lament and exclaim. The loss of the ball, the loss of the young man, and all that young man might be feeling. It was too wretched. Such a delightful evening as it would have been. Everybody so happy. And she and her partner the happiest. I said it would be so, was the only consolation. Her father's feelings were quite distinct. He thought principally of Mrs. Churchill's illness, and wanted to know how she was treated. And as for the ball, it was shocking to have dear Emma disappointed, but they would all be safer at home. Emma was ready for her visitor some time before he appeared. But if this reflected at all upon his impatience, his sorrowful look, and total want of spirits when he did come, might redeem him. He felt the going away almost too much to speak of it. His dejection was most evident. He sat really lost in thought for the first few minutes, and when rousing himself it was only to say, Of all horrid things, leave-taking is the worst. But you will come again, said Emma. This will not be your only visit to Randall's. Ah, shaking his head. The uncertainty of when I may be able to return. I shall try for it with a zeal. It will be the object of all my thoughts and cares, and if my uncle and aunt go to town this spring, but I am afraid they did not stir last spring. I am afraid it is a custom gone for ever. Our poor ball must be quite given up. Uh, that ball! Why did we wait for anything? Why not seize the pleasure at once? How often is happiness destroyed by preparation, foolish preparation? You told us it would be so. Oh, Miss Woodhouse, why are you always so right? Indeed, I'm very sorry to be right in this instance. I would much rather have been merry than wise. If I can come again, we are still to have our ball. My father depends on it. Do not forget your engagement. 
Emma looked graciously. Such a fortnight as it has been, he continued. Every day more precious and more delightful than the day before. Every day making me less fit to bear any other place. Happy those who can remain at Highbury. As you do us such ample justice now, said Emma, laughing, I will venture to ask whether you did not come a little doubtfully at first. Do not we rather surpass your expectations? I am sure we do. I am sure you did not expect to like us. You would not have been so long in coming if you had had a pleasant idea of Highbury. He laughed rather consciously, and though denying the sentiment, Emma was convinced that it had been so. And you must be off this very morning. Yes, my father is to join me here. We shall walk back together, and I must be off immediately. I am almost afraid that every moment will bring him. Not five minutes to spare even for your friends Miss Fairfax and Miss Bates. How unlucky. Miss Bates's powerful argumentative mind might have strengthened yours. Yes, I have called there. Passing the door, I thought it better. It was a right thing to do. I went in for three minutes, and was detained by Mrs. Bates's being absent. She was out, and I felt it impossible not to wait till she came in. She is a woman that one may, that one must, laugh at, but that one would not wish to slight. It was better to pay my visit than— He hesitated, got up, walked to a window. In short, said he, perhaps, Miss Woodhouse, I think you can hardly be quite without suspicion— he looked at her as if wanting to read her thoughts. She hardly knew what to say. It seemed like the forerunner of something absolutely serious, which she did not wish. Forcing herself to speak, therefore, in the hope of putting it by, she calmly said, "'You are quite right. It was most natural to pay your visit then.' He was silent. She believed he was looking at her, probably reflecting on what she had said and trying to understand the manner. She heard him sigh. It was natural for him to feel that he had cause to sigh. He could not believe her to be encouraging him. A few awkward moments passed, and he sat down again, and in a more determined manner said, "'It was something to feel that all the rest of my time might be given to Hartfield. My regard for Hartfield is most warm.' He stopped again, rose again, and seemed quite embarrassed. He was more in love with her than Emma had supposed, and who can say how it might have ended if his father had not made his appearance? Mr. Woodhouse soon followed, and the necessity of exertion made him composed. A few minutes more, however, completed the present trial. Mr. Weston, always alert when business was to be done, and as incapable of procrastinating any evil that was inevitable, as of foreseeing any that was doubtful, said it was time to go, and the young man, though he might, and did sigh, could not but agree to take leave. "'I shall hear about you all,' said he. "'That is my chief consolation. I shall hear of everything that is going on among you. I have engaged Mrs. Weston to correspond with me. She has been so kind as to promise it. Oh, the blessing of a female correspondent, when one is really interested in the absent!' She will tell me everything. In her letters, I shall be at dear Highbury again. A very friendly shake of the hand, a very earnest good-bye, closed the speech, and the door had soon shut out Frank Churchill. Short had been the notice, short their meeting. 
he was gone, and Emma felt so sorry to part, and foresaw so great a loss to their little society from his absence as to begin to be afraid of being too sorry, and feeling it too much. It was a sad change. They had been meeting almost every day since his arrival. Certainly, his being at Randall's had given great spirit to the last two weeks. Indescribable spirit. The idea, the expectation of seeing him which every morning had brought, the assurance of his attentions, his liveliness, his manners. It had been a very happy fortnight, and forlorn must be the sinking from it into the common course of Hartfield days. To complete every other recommendation, he had almost told her that he loved her. What strength, or what constancy of affection he might be subject to, was another point. But at present, she could not doubt his having a decidedly warm admiration, a conscious preference of herself. And this persuasion, joined to all the rest, made her think that she must be a little in love with him, in spite of every previous determination against it. "'I certainly must,' said she. "'This sensation of listlessness, weariness, stupidity, "'this disinclination to sit down and employ myself, "'this feeling of everything's being dull and insipid about the house. "'I must be in love. "'I should be the oddest creature in the world if I were not, "'for a few weeks at least. "'Well, evil to some is always good to others. "'I shall have many fellow mourners for the ball, "'if not for Frank Churchill.' "'But Mr. Knightley will be happy. "'He may spend the evening with his dear William Larkins now, if he likes.' "'Mr. Knightley, however, showed no triumphant happiness. "'He could not say that he was sorry on his own account. "'His very cheerful look would have contradicted him if he had. "'But he said, and very steadily, "'that he was sorry for the disappointment of the others, "'and with considerable kindness added, "'You, Emma, who have so few opportunities of dancing,' "'You are really out of luck. You are very much out of luck.' It was some days before she saw Jane Fairfax, to judge of her honest regret in this woeful change. But when they did meet, her composure was odious. She had been particularly unwell, however, suffering from headache to a degree, which made her aunt declare that, had the ball taken place, she did not think Jane could have attended it and it was charity to impute some of her unbecoming indifference to the languor of ill health. Chapter 13 Emma continued to entertain no doubt of her being in love. Her ideas only varied as to the how much. At first she thought it was a good deal, and afterwards but little. She had great pleasure in hearing Frank Churchill talked of, and for his sake, greater pleasure than ever in seeing Mr. and Mrs. Weston. She was very often thinking of him, and quite impatient for a letter, that she might know how he was, how were his spirits, how was his aunt, and what was the chance of his coming to Randall's again this spring. But, on the other hand, she could not admit herself to be unhappy, nor, after the first morning, to be less disposed for employment than usual. She was still busy and cheerful, and, pleasing as he was, she could yet imagine him to have faults, and father, though thinking of him so much, and, as she sat drawing or working, forming a thousand amusing schemes for the progress and close of their attachment, fancying interesting dialogues, and inventing elegant letters, the conclusion of every imaginary declaration on his side was that she refused him. 
Their affection was always to subside into friendship. Everything tender and charming was to mark their parting, but still they were to part. When she became sensible of this, it struck her that she could not be very much in love, for in spite of her previous and fixed determination never to quit her father, never to marry, a strong attachment certainly must produce more of a struggle than she could foresee in her own feelings. "'I do not find myself making any use of the word sacrifice,' said she. "'In not one of all my clever replies, my delicate negatives, is there any allusion to making a sacrifice. I do suspect that he is not really necessary to my happiness. So much the better. I certainly will not persuade myself to feel more than I do. I am quite enough in love.' I should be sorry to be more. Upon the whole, she was equally contented with her view of his feelings. He is undoubtedly very much in love. Everything denotes it. Very much in love indeed. And when he comes again, if his affection continue, I must be on my guard not to encourage it. It would be most inexcusable to do otherwise, as my own mind is quite made up. Not that I imagine he can think I have been encouraging him hitherto— no, if he had believed me at all to share his feelings, he would not have been so wretched. Could he have thought himself encouraged, his looks and language at parting would have been different. Still, however, I must be on my guard. This is in the supposition of his attachment continuing what it now is. But I do not know that I expect it will. I do not look upon him to be quite the sort of man. I do not altogether build upon his steadiness or constancy. His feelings are warm, but I can imagine them rather changeable. Every consideration of the subject, in short, makes me thankful that my happiness is not more deeply involved. I shall do very well again after a little while, and then it will be a good thing over, for they say everybody is in love once in their lives, and I shall have been let off easily. When his letter to Mrs. Weston arrived, Emma had the perusal of it, and she read it with a degree of pleasure and admiration which made her at first shake her head over her own sensations and think she had undervalued their strength. It was a long, well-written letter, giving the particulars of his journey and of his feelings, expressing all the affection, gratitude, and respect which was natural and honourable, and describing everything exterior and local that could be supposed attractive with spirits and precision." No suspicious flourishes now of apology or concern. It was the language of a real feeling towards Mrs. Weston, and the transition from Highbury to Inscombe, the contrast between the places in some of the first blessings of social life, was just enough touched on to show how keenly it was felt, and how much more might have been said, but for the restraints of propriety. The charm of her own name was not wanting— Miss Woodhouse appeared more than once, and never without a something of pleasing connection, either a compliment to her taste, or a remembrance of what she had said. And, in the very last time of its meeting her eye, unadorned as it was by any such broad wreath of gallantry, she yet could discern the effect of her influence, and acknowledge the greatest compliment perhaps of all conveyed. Compressed into the very lowest vacant corner were these words— I had not a spare moment on Tuesday, as you know, for Miss Woodhouse's beautiful little friend. Pray make my excuses and adieus to her. This, Emma, could not doubt, was all for herself. Harriet was remembered only from being her friend. 
His information and prospects as to Enscombe were neither worse nor better than had been anticipated. Mrs. Churchill was recovering, and he dared not yet, even in his own imagination, fix a time for coming to Randall's again. Gratifying, however, and stimulative as was the letter in the material part, its sentiments she yet found, when it was folded up and returned to Mrs. Weston, that she could still do without the writer, and that he must learn to do without her. Her intentions were unchanged, her resolution of refusal only grew more interesting by the addition of a scheme for his subsequent consolation and happiness. His recollection of Harriet, and the words which clothed it, the beautiful little friend, suggested to her the idea of Harriet succeeding her in his affections. Was it impossible? No. Harriet undoubtedly was greatly his inferior in understanding, but he had been very much struck with the loveliness of her face, and the warm simplicity of her manner, and all the probabilities of circumstance and connection were in her favour. For Harriet, it would be advantageous and delightful indeed. "'I must not dwell upon it,' said she. "'I must not think of it. I know the danger of indulging such speculations. But stranger things have happened, and when we cease to care for each other as we do now, it will be the means of confirming us in that sort of true, disinterested friendship which I can already look forward to with pleasure.' It was well to have a comfort in store on Harriet's behalf, though it might be wise to let the fancy touch it seldom. For evil in that quarter was at hand. As Frank Churchill's arrival had succeeded Mr. Elton's engagement in the conversation of Highbury, as the latest interest had entirely borne down the first, so now upon Frank Churchill's disappearance, Mr. Elton's concerns were assuming the most irresistible form. His wedding day was named. He would soon be among them again. Mr. Elton and his bride. There was hardly time to talk over the first letter from Enscombe before Mr. Elton and his bride was in everybody's mouth, and Frank Churchill was forgotten. Emma grew sick at the sound. She had had three weeks of happy exemption from Mr. Elton, and Harriet's mind, she had been willing to hope, had been lately gaining strength. With Mr. Weston's ball in view at least, there had been a great deal of insensibility to other things— but it was now too evident that she had not attained such a state of composure as could stand against the actual approach. New carriage, bell ringing and all. Poor Harriet was in a flutter of spirits, which required all the reasonings and soothings and attentions of every kind that Emma could give. Emma felt that she could not do too much for her, that Harriet had a right to all her ingenuity and all her patience, but it was heavy work to be forever convincing without producing any effect, for ever agreed to without being able to make their opinions the same. Harriet listened submissively, and said, It was very true. It was just as Miss Woodhouse described. It was not worth while to think about them, and she would not think about them any longer. But no change of subject could avail, and the next half-hour saw her as anxious and restless about the Eltons as before. At last, Emma attacked her on another ground. "'You're allowing yourself to be so occupied and so unhappy about Mr. Elton's marrying, Harriet, is the strongest reproach you can make me. You could not give me a greater reproof for the mistake I fell into. It was all my doing, I know. I have not forgotten it, I assure you. Deceive myself, I did very miserably deceive you, and it will be a painful reflection to me for ever.' 
Do not imagine me in danger of forgetting it. Harriet felt it too much to utter more than a few words of eager exclamation. Emma continued. I have not said exert yourself, Harriet, for my sake. Think less, talk less of Mr. Elton for my sake. Because, for your own sake, rather, I would wish it to be done. For the sake of what is more important than your comfort, a habit of self-command in you, a consideration of what is your duty, an attention to propriety, an endeavour to avoid the suspicions of others, to save your health and credit, and restore your tranquillity. These are the motives which I have been pressing on you. They are very important, and sorry I am that you cannot feel them sufficiently to act upon them. My being saved from pain is a very secondary consideration. I want you to save yourself from greater pain. Perhaps I may sometimes have felt that Harriet would not forget what was due, or rather what would be kind by me. This appeal to her affections did more than all the rest. The idea of wanting gratitude and consideration for Miss Woodhouse, whom she really loved extremely, made her wretched for a while, and when the violence of grief was comforted away, still remained powerful enough to prompt to what was right and support her in it very tolerably. "'You, who have been the best friend I have ever had in my life, want gratitude to you. Nobody is equal to you. I care for nobody as I do for you. Oh, Miss Woodhouse, how ungrateful I have been!' Such expressions, assisted as they were by everything that look and manner could do, made Emma feel that she had never loved Harriet so well, nor valued her affection so highly before. "'There is no charm equal to tenderness of heart,' said she afterwards to herself. "'There is nothing to be compared to it. Warmth and tenderness of heart, with an affectionate open manner, will beat all the clearness of head in the world for attraction. I am sure it will.' It is tenderness of heart which makes my dear father so generally beloved, which gives Isabella all her popularity. I have it not, but I know how to prize and respect it. Harriet is my superior in all the charm and all the felicity it gives. Dear Harriet, I would not change you for the clearest-headed, longest-sighted, best-judging female breathing. Oh, the coldness of a Jane Fairfax! Harriet is worth a hundred such— and for a wife, a sensible man's wife, it is invaluable. I mention no names, but happy the man who changes Emma for Harriet. Thank you so much for listening today. I know I say it all the time. It sounds kind of cliche, but as a podcaster, uh, without listeners, <laughs> it, the show doesn't exist. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sharing the podcast. That really is the biggest thing. I know you know everybody's always pushing their merchandise and pushing their uh, Patreon and pushing all kinds of stuff. But uh, really, sharing is, is probably the best way, just getting more listeners. And then you you know hopefully get more supporters through that and all that sort of thing. So uh, if you want to just share it, that would be amazing. I love, love love, love, love seeing the podcast in real life, quote unquote, <laughs> on social media. If you want to share it, tell other people about it. It is uh, probably the best way to share love. So you go out there, have a fantastic week and tell somebody about another world audiobooks. You know, if it comes up in the conversation, talk to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.